The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Uh, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 and 7. It's the second book in the Bible. That's where we'll be today. And and here's where I want to start this morning. Um, What I want to lean in on just a bit. The moment that we're navigating right now together as a church has some unique challenges, does it not? I, I don't feel like I need to lay them out for you. We're all living this moment together. We know what we're facing but here's what, what's on my heart to start with. This, this moment that we're in, with all of its disorienting realities and confusing realities and frustrating realities, and can I even say at time, angering realities, can we start this morning with just a little honesty to say there have been times in the last nine, ten months where all of us have dealt with anger at some of the stuff we're facing and tried to process that. Sometimes we don't even know where our anger is coming from or what it's rooted in, but we've all felt it. And, and, but here's the thing. Even in light of these realities, this moment that we're in right now is the day that the Lord has given us. It is the moment God has given us together to navigate, to seek him as his people, a distinct people in a time with a lot at stake. God didn't call our parents to this moment He hasn't called our kids to it. Our parents had their moment. The generation that came before us did. They had their challenges. Our kids will have theirs. And and this moment is our moment to be God's people. And if God has called us to this moment, which he has, the fact that we are here in it is proof that he's called us to this moment. That means that God wants to, is able to, and can equip us to navigate this moment well, to shine in it, as his people, if we will step into the moment humbly and courageous, courageously with him together. This is the moment God has given us. And, and, and something I hope we can see in this moment is that in a time where there's a lot of temptation to draw dividing lines, we have a real enemy, Satan, who hates the church hates Jesus, hates the message of the gospel, and opposes everything we do. And in this moment, we need one another. We need one another. The church needs to be a united front right now. And one important way that I think we're going to have to learn more and more to be distinct is that as a church, we're going to become increasingly marked by humility that leads us to engagement with one another, with a humble listening posture. And hear this, especially where we have disagreements. The Holy Spirit would lead us to engage where the temptation would be to withdraw. The Holy Spirit would lead us to humble ourselves before one another where the temptation might be to cave in to pride. We need to be humble people with listening postures, especially where we disagree. Hear me, church, as the people of God, we need to recognize and resist the demonic temptation to start broad stroke categorizing the people we deal, we disagree with so that we never have to engage with them in a loving, listening, learning conversation where God, through his spirit, might be able to take back some ground and mutually sharpen and challenge us all. 
So the temptation to join our culture as it silos off into echo chambers needs to be recognized in the church as a demonic temptation and resisted. We need one another right now, church. We need each other's voices. We need each other's ears. We need each other's loving dispositions. And I'm convinced that if we're going to do this in our moment, if we're truly going to step into our God-given calling in this season with all of its challenges, we all, each of us individually, have to start here. We have to humble our hearts and draw near to God in a way that perhaps we haven't done in months or years, maybe ever. This season may require each of us to grow through God's grace into a level of maturity that we've never reached before. I think that this drawing near to God with our hearts from the depths of our souls saying, we need you right now, Jesus. I need you. Bind me to your side and don't ever let me leave. I think that that's an act of countercultural resistance right now. I think the first act of resistance as a church that we're called to right now is to draw near to God with all of our hearts. See, humility and patience and listening where tensions feel high, you need God for that. I need God for that. We can't do it in our own strength. The waters of our times are getting too choppy for us to navigate in our own wisdom and strength. We need Jesus. We need his spirit guiding us. We need his wisdom more than ever. So my simple hope this morning as we look at God's word in Exodus is to follow up on last week's sermon on Jesus is our high priest and, and the sermon we had a couple weeks ago on how God is gentle and lowly and welcomes us as we are to continue to lay before us God's love for us in Christ as perfect and complete and welcoming with this goal, so that we would begin to gladly draw near to him. And that as we do through his spirit, we would more and more become a people of countercultural love who steward the moment he's called us to well. And here's the thing, church. You will not draw near to a God that you don't believe loves you. You will not draw near to a God with your whole heart if you don't believe that he's good. So if we are going to experience radical togetherness in a divided time, where we have to start is each of our hearts individually coming to Jesus, seeing him as good, believing his love, and receiving his spirit and his maturity in ways that maybe we never have. So let's seek to do that this morning. Let's seek to draw near to God. Exodus 33, we're gonna look at who God is this morning. Uh, in Exodus uh, 33, Moses has just asked God to show him his glory. He said, God, I wanna see you as you are in your fullness. Show me your glory. That's to say, show me what makes you, you, God. Show me what makes you, God. Show me yourself. And the text says uh, that Moses found favor in God's sight. And so God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock. And he agrees to pass by him and declare, in verse 19, he says, his goodness. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Which is a surprising turn there because Moses asked God to show him his glory. And God says, yes, you found favor in my sight. I'm going to make all of my goodness pass before you. It's a surprising turn. We tend to think of 
glory in terms of power, of greatness, of, of gavel swinging, of thundering bolts of lightning, of Zeus on his hill. That's our picture of glory. But God has a different picture of his glory. He's tied his glory not first and primarily to his greatness, but to his goodness, which has a relational undercurrent to it. God wants us to see and sense his goodness. Hear me. God wants to be known as good to us before he is known as great over us. Now, that's not to say he's not great over us. To come to Jesus as Savior, you come to him as Lord. But the first note in God's heart is this. See my goodness, my relational disposition towards you. And so in Exodus 34, 6, God does what he said he would do. He passes before Moses and he proclaims his name. Let's read his words as he does. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." Outside of the incarnation of Christ where we see God's fullness and bodily form in Jesus, most theologians and Bible scholars would agree that this is the high point of all divine revelation in the Bible. This, is, this verse in Exodus is where God the Father opens his heart up to us and says, this is who I am. These are the primary features that make me, me. Uh, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann called this text an exceedingly important, stylized, quite self-conscious conscious characterization of Yahweh. He said it was a normative statement to which Israel regularly returned. These verses are repeated well over a dozen times throughout the New Testament in the Psalms and the prophets to describe God and his heart. So if we want to know what God considers most central to who he is, that we might draw near to him in truth, this is a good place to look. This is a good place to start. So let's look at the different features God's laid out for us of himself here. First, verse six, he passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. God's first words about himself are that he's merciful, that he's gracious. What does your heart expect God's first word about himself to be. We don't probably in our heart of hearts often expect him to say, the thing I first and most want you to know about me is that I am marked by mercy and grace. More often we may feel that God may say something like, the Lord, the Lord, frustrated and fickle. The Lord, the Lord, passive and lenient the Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. But the first thing God wants to tell us about himself is that he's merciful and gracious. It's the thing he's most eager for us to hear about his heart. This lines up with the New Testament picture of God in Christ. Listen to this, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together together. With Christ. By grace you have been saved 
And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is an exposition of the gospel, of how we're made righteous before God through Christ. But then he says this, God's purpose in it. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's motivation in sending Christ was to showcase the glory of his grace for all of eternity, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. What this means is simply, God hasn't bound his glory up in his ability to crush his enemies. He's bound it up in his willingness to die for them. All the heroes of our day, be them athletes, politicians, whatever it is, we find their glory in their ability to rise above their foes and push them down, to conquer. God finds his glory in his ability to get beneath his enemies and sacrifice his life for them, to lift them up to a station where they don't deserve to be. Do you believe this about God, that his heart towards you is merciful and gracious? He continues, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Slow to anger. I want to camp out on this point for a decent portion of our sermon this morning, because I think there's a lot here for us. God says that he's slow to anger. The Hebrew phrase translated here is an interesting one. It literally reads that God is long in the nose, long of nose or long of nostrils. That's a weird, that's a weird phrase, isn't it? What does it mean? Well, when we get angry, blood rushes to our face. Our nose goes red. Our nostrils flare out. I walked into the living room this morning to test this, and I, I went to my six and four-year-old daughters, and I said, hey, show me your angry face. And, and both of them went like this. It's the picture of our noses going red, our nostrils flaring out when we get angry. But God is long in the nose. It takes a long time for blood to get to the end of his nose. It takes a long time for his face to go red. It takes a long time for his nostrils to flare out. He's slow to anger. But here's what's implicit here. Our God is not barked by no anger, and our God is not marked by blow anger. He's marked by slow anger. He's marked by slow anger. Let's look at this. First, God's not marked by no anger. Implicit in God being slow to anger is the fact that he experiences anger. This honestly gives us pause, right? We don't love the thought of an almighty God being angry, whether it's slow or not, but this is God's self-disclosure of himself. It's who he says he is. But let's think about this. If we had a God who could stand with an omnipotent, all-seeing view over all of the injustice and all of the evil that unfolds in every 24-hour cycle on planet Earth and could passively stand by and look down on that and feel nothing, would that be a good God? Would that be a God that we would call good at all? It is God's goodness at the sight of injustice and evil that produces in him anger when he sees the evil of our world damaging the things he loves. The realities of wickedness and injustice and the pain and suffering they unleash on our world do arouse God's heart. He feels something when he sees that. 
And for God to be good, they would have to. But God's anger isn't just slow in these moments, it's righteous. It's holy anger, it's loving anger. Even in his anger, God's love is the active driving force. I think we could define God's righteous anger as his love aroused in defense of something good that's being injured, that is vulnerable to something evil. Think of a parent whose child that they've raised and loved in their teenage years caving in under an addiction, their child on the streets at the doorpost of death. And the parent looks on to the havoc that this addiction is reaping in the life of the child they love. And if that parent loves their child at all, they're going to feel anger at the addiction that has assaulted the life of their child. If the parent could look on as their child's life was ruined by an addiction and feel nothing at all, we would not call that love. We would not call that level of indifference love. We would actually call it the opposite of love. The parent's anger in the moment like that doesn't contradict their love for their child. It proves it. God's anger at evil doesn't contradict his love or grace. It proves it. His slow anger is his goodness defending the things he loves. But not only is God not marked by no anger, he's, marked by, he's not marked by blow anger. He doesn't blow up. He doesn't ever just lose his mind and punch a wall. His anger is always measured. It's always controlled. And hear me, it's always strategic. It takes a long time for his face to go red. And even when it does, he never goes out of control. He stays completely in control. God always extends to us as we linger in our sin, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for us to turn from the sin that is hurting us and destroying us for grace and mercy through repentance. But there comes a moment where eventually he can be provoked to a measured strategic anger that's meant, if we're in Christ, to return us to him. Hebrews 12 talks about how God disciplines the children he loves as a father disciplines the child he delights in. His discipline in our lives when we linger in sin is his loving hand trying to gently pull us out of the sin that is destroying us and lead us back to his good, kind, gracious heart where life and healing and joy can ultimately be found. There are many times throughout the Old Testament where we read that Israel through their sin, provoked the Lord to anger, provoked the Lord to anger. But here's what's amazing. Never once in all of the scripture do we read of God being provoked to love. He doesn't have to be provoked to love. It's what he's full of. It is his nature. He is like a dam spilling over love. A pinprick will set loose a flood of love into our lives. To contrast that, Hebrews 10.24 instructs you and I to provoke one another to love. What we can see here is that God does not need provoking to love. He only needs provoking to anger. But we need no provoking to anger. We need to provoke one another to love. So I just want to lean on this point for a moment. I want to 
get gently prescriptive here for us. Not so that I can put a weight or a to-do list on us, but to try to do just what Hebrews 10.24 says, to provoke myself and our church to love in the season, the moment we are in. See, one area I've been praying that God would pour, pour abundant grace out on me and out on our church in, in this moment, this season, is the area of how we process and how we use our anger. And my prayer has been that nearness to God's slow to anger heart would transform us and make us like him, slow to anger together. See, there's a lot of blow up anger. There's a lot of blow anger going around right now. But I believe that God, through his spirit, would lead us to a distinct relational disposition as a church. Not where we're indifferent, avoiding anger, refusing to deal with things, but also not to where we're participating in the blow anger of our age. Processing our anger with God, slow to anger. Listen to this from the word of God, Ecclesiastes 7:9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We can all be honest here. Blow anger feels good in the moment, doesn't it? For a minute. But only in the same way that peeing your pants feels good for a minute. In the end, it only makes a bad situation a whole lot worse. And it starts to stink. It doesn't build up, it doesn't heal, it's not persuasive. So, how do we use our anger well? How? Well, let's start here. Pray your anger first. Process your anger first in private with God before you pronounce it in public. Examine its roots. Think about your anger. What am I really mad at? What am I really mad about? Is it a good thing to guard? Is it a worthy cause or not? Am I guarding my self-righteous pride? my hurt ego, or am I guarding the things God cares about? Then, having done that through the Spirit, you can proceed to use your anger by God's grace in a way that actually has a chance of helping and healing, persuading. See, I believe anger processed with God and prayer will bear the fruit in our church of sharpening and healing though at times uncomfortable conversations. And those conversations will be marked by humble listening and gentle seasoned with salt speaking and away from screaming and memeing our anger into the echo chambers of social media feeds and often homogenized social circles. Drawing near to God will allow us to discuss the hard things without the need to squash one another verbally but from a posture that genuinely, humbly goes, what am I missing? I may have blind spots. Help me see your perspective. 
And maybe together we can get closer, a nudge closer to God's perfect perspective on these hard things. And hear me, just because you're angry doesn't mean you have to be unloving. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let all that you do be done in love. All, anger not excluded. There is a way to be angry in love. Again, what we are talking about here is supernatural. It's impossible if we are not clinging moment by moment to God. So think with me. If you are ingesting daily, moment by moment, the vitriol of social media, hour by hour, but not ingesting through God's word, through, his, through time in prayer, the love of Christ into your soul, we're going to have a hard time embodying this. We need our diet to be a diet full of God's mercy and grace and his spirit poured out into our lives through the truth of his word. And I want to say, if you're feeling feelings of hatred or revenge within yourself in this moment, lovingly, that is a sign that something is wrong. We need to take those feelings to God and ask why we're feeling them. We need to let him deal with it. So again, I come back to we need God for this. Draw near to his heart and let him begin to work on your heart. God has been slow to anger with us, with me, with you, when we deserve the opposite. In Christ, God has forgiven us and welcomed us, though we deserve to be cast out. So we can learn together to be slow to anger with one another. And I believe with all of my heart that this is part of what stepping into our moment and becoming a culturally distinct people that shine like stars in the darkness in this season is going to look like. It's going to look like us leaning in together and engaging, not disengaging and siloing off. Let's continue. 33 verse 6 again. He's not only full of mercy and grace, not only slow to anger, but God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What we have here is God speaking covenant language. The Hebrew word for steadfast love here is hesed. And hesed is the act of God gladly binding himself to you and me, not on any merit of our own, but because In his own heart, he has simply decided to, and he will never change his mind, no matter what. He says, my love for you has no conditions. To quote Katy Perry, God loves us unconditionally. This kind of rubs up against our idea of romantic love, something you feel first. God just says, I love you because I love you because I love you. But think, if you're in a relationship and someone says to you, I love you because you're beautiful. I love you because you're beautiful. Well, a a, a thought that might happen in the recesses of your heart is, well, what if my beauty fades? Will you still love me? If you say, I love you because you're a great conversationalist and you make me laugh. Well, what if your sense of humor changes or my conversational quality changes over time? Will our love fade Anything you say I love you because represents actually a vulnerability in your love. 
But God says, said love says, I don't love you because you offer me anything. My steadfast love is just, I love you because I love you, love. And that can never be removed. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8 that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because it never was founded upon us. It was founded on God's covenant-keeping, volitional decision to set his love upon us, and we can never outrun it through our sin, through our wandering, through our doubt. Once you are in Christ, God has fixed his love upon you forever, and it can never be removed. Verse 7 keeping steadfast love for thousands, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God continues on this theme of his steadfast covenant-keeping love, and he says that his steadfast love is extended to thousands, but this could more accurately be translated directly from the Hebrew to a thousand generations. God's steadfast love is extended to a thousand generations. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says it more clearly. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. But this is not God's way of saying a thousand generations and then generation 1001 is out of luck. They got to start over. This is God's way of telling us that there's no expiration date on his steadfast love for those who are in Christ. You can't outrun his love once it's set on you. His heart is fixed. And I want us to keep this reality in view as we unfold the rest of this verse where we read verses that aren't quite as warming at first glance about God's character. Because this the, the words we read to close here in this verse are meant to be held together and in tension with the words we've read. This closing element of God's character, while initially hard to hear, I will by no means clear the guilty visiting sin on the third and fourth generation, is still vital to who God is. And taken in full view of his grace, it can actually be quite comforting. See, without this proclamation, all that preceded might be understood by God as mere leniency, as though God was unwilling to actually deal with evil and injustice. But God is the most fair person in the universe. Yes, sin and guilt pass down from generation to generation. You don't have to look far in our own families and in our world and in our country to recognize this reality. Sin does have consequences. But notice what God's done here and how he's revealed this. He said, yes, sin and judgment passed down three or four generations. There are consequences. It's serious. But my steadfast love funnels down forever through thousands of generations in a never-ending way to where sin is completely swallowed up by my mercy and grace. At the end of the story, all that will be left is love and mercy. And through Christ, all sin and death and all of its carnage conquered forever. This is good news. And here's what I hope we see as we look at God's words about himself. In this high point of divine revelation in the Old Testament, as God opens his heart up to us, mercy and love and forgiveness and grace 
and slow anger for our restoration loom large. And yes, justice and judgment are acknowledged, but almost as a necessary afterthought. He doesn't feel a need to balance the scales of communication as he lays his mercy and grace before us. He speaks of himself, as Richard Sibbs, the Puritan author, said, in as clothed in all sweet attributes. He wants Moses and us to feel the weight of his love for us in Christ deeply. That's who he is. And you may hear all sweet attributes and think, well, honestly, uh, I will by no means clear the guilty. It doesn't feel sweet to me. How does that sweet? How is that good news? Well, it becomes good news When you see the substitute. It becomes good news when you see Jesus on the cross. Absorbing the judgment of God. Willingly laying down his life for you and me. So that God can be true to his character. By no means clearing the guilty. Because he poured out his justice towards sin on Jesus. So that we who deserved it could go free. And be loved and welcomed as we are. See your substitute this morning. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore them. They were poured out on him so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Hear me in love gently, Christian and non-Christian. In the end, Either Christ dies for your sin, or you do. There's no other way, but God stands before you now, extending grace, extending mercy through Christ, welcoming you, bidding you to come as you are with all of your mess to him, where he will forgive you and pour out grace and engraft you, join you into his family forever, washing your sins away, casting them as far as east is from west, once and for all, through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, so that he can be both just and justifier. He can both justly punish sin as a good God in Christ and justify all those who would come to Christ freely. Have you come to him? Mercy and grace and forgiveness and love are waiting when you do. Church, my prayer as we close this morning is that we would come to Jesus first and foremost, drawing near in our days habitually through prayer, through time in the word, saying, Jesus, I am making a concerted effort right now to be close to you. Would you be close to me? I can't navigate this season without your help. I need you, Jesus. You've promised in your in your Bible, in James, that when I draw near to you, you will draw near to me. So I'm drawing near to you, Jesus. Draw near to me. Pour out grace. Pour out mercy. Give me a sense of your love and help me to navigate this season well. Engaging in love. In everything. Church, we can do this through Christ. Draw near to him this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for telling us who you are, for not leaving us 
a mystery to guess at. You are the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, pardoning sin through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. We see you as good. We experience your goodness this morning. We experience your love. We thank you that you are slow to anger with us. Help us, Lord, to be slow to anger with one another. Let conversations of healing and life spring up in our congregation. Lead us forward together as your people in a dark season as children of the light. Welcoming one another willing to get uncomfortable with one another because you got uncomfortable for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.